Hello and welcome to Tea and Old Books. This is day 43 of the Spanish lockdown and we are reading The Dead Secret by Wilkie Collins. Today is Sunday the 26th of April and today was quite an exciting day in Spain because for the first time in six weeks children were officially allowed to go outside. So Spain has some of the strictest lockdown rules in the whole of Europe, maybe even the whole world, where children were not allowed to go outside at all for any reason unless they, the adult that was looking after them was looking after them alone. So they had no other adults to look after them in the house, then they could take them outside. So the children of Spain have been inside for six weeks and today they were allowed to go outside for an hour of exercise at most. So that was very exciting for them. And it was quite nice for me because I could see from my balcony all these children wandering around, scooting past on their scooters and like roller skating. It's very nice. They're still not allowed to interact with each other but they are now allowed to go outside for one hour each day, which I think is gonna make a big difference to all those poor children who have been stuck inside in tiny flats without gardens for such a long time. Now the tea that I'm drinking today is a peppermint tea. It's quite late today, so I'm doing this recording at half past 10 because I forgot and then I had all these Zoom meetings with various friends and family and it pushed, pushed me back. So I am now reluctantly doing this quite late and I shall reward myself with some cake once I am done. What happened yesterday? So yesterday, in yesterday's episode, we had Uncle Joseph came back onto the scene and he spoke with Rosamond and he begged Rosamond to promise that she would not hunt down Sarah Leeson and demand answers because he's worried that Sarah is sick in London and she won't come back unless she's sure that Rosamond won't try and find her. Now Rosamond definitely wants to find her but she promised this to Uncle Joseph and so Uncle Joseph has gone off to London to try and bring back Sarah Leeson. And that was yesterday's excitement. So <clears throat> we will continue. We are now on book six, chapter two. Waiting and hoping. Pausing just briefly to say that I'm hoping that this book wraps up soon because this is so long winded. Let's carry on. <clears throat> the week of expectation passed and no tidings from Uncle Joseph reached Porthkenna Tower. On the eighth day, Mr. Franklin sent a message to Truro with orders to find out the cabinet maker's shop held by Mr. Buskman and to inquire of the person left in charge there whether he had received any news from his master. The messenger returned in the afternoon and brought word that Mr. Buskman had written one short note to his shopman since his departure, announcing that he had arrived safely toward nightfall in London, that he had met with a hospitable welcome from his countryman, the German baker, and that he had discovered his niece's address but had been prevented from seeing her by an obstacle which he hoped would be removed at his next visit. Since the delivery of that note, no further communication had been received from him, 
and nothing therefore was known of the period at which he might be expected to return. The one fragment of intelligence thus obtained was not of a nature to relieve the depression of spirits which the doubt and suspense of the past week had produced in Mrs. Frankland. <coughs> oh, sorry. Her husband endeavoured to combat the oppression of mind from which she was suffering by reminding her that the ominous silence of Uncle Joseph might be just as probably occasioned by his niece's unwillingness as by her inability to return with him to Truro. Remembering the obstacle at which the old man's letter hinted, and taking also into consideration her excessive sensitiveness and her unreasoning timidity, he declared it to be quite possible that Mrs Franklin's message, instead of reassuring her, might only inspire her with fresh apprehensions, and might consequently strengthen her resolution to keep herself out of reach of all communications from Porthgenna Tower. Rosamond listened patiently while this view of the case was placed before her, and acknowledged that the reasonableness of it was beyond dispute. But her readiness in admitting that her husband might be right, and that she might be wrong, was accompanied by no change for the better in the condition of her spirits. The interpretation which the old man had placed upon the alteration for the worse in Mrs. Joseph's handwriting had produced a vivid impression on her mind, which had been strengthened by her own recollection of her mother's pale, worn face when they met as strangers at West Winston. Reason, therefore, as convincingly as he might, Mr. Franklin was unable to shake his wife's conviction that the obstacle mentioned in Uncle Joseph's letter and the silence which he had maintained since were referable alike to the illness of his niece. The return of the messenger from Truro suggested, besides this topic of discussion, another question of much greater importance. After having waited one day beyond the week that had been appointed, what was the proper course of action for Mr and Mrs Frankland now to adopt, in the absence of any information from London, or from Truro, to decide their future proceedings? Leonard's first idea was to write immediately to Uncle Joseph, at the address which he had given on the occasion of his visit to Porthgenna Tower. When this project was communicated to Rosamond, she opposed it, on the ground that the necessary delay before the answer to the letter could arrive would involve a serious waste of time, when it might, for aught they knew to be contrary, be the last importance to them not to risk the loss of a single day. If illness prevented Mrs. Joseph from travelling, it would be necessary to see her at once, because that illness might increase. If she were only suspicious of their motives, it was equally important to open personal communications with her before she could find an opportunity of raising some fresh obstacle and of concealing herself again in some place of refuge which Uncle Joseph himself might not be able to trace. The truth of these conclusions was obvious, but Leonard hesitated to adopt them, because they involved the necessity of a journey to London. If he went there without his wife, his blindness placed him at the mercy of strangers and servants in conducting investigations of the most delicate and most private nature. 
If Rosamond accompanied him, it would be necessary to risk all kinds of delays and inconveniences by taking the child with them on a long and wearisome journey of more than 250 miles. Rosamond met both these difficulties with her usual directness and decision. The idea of her husband travelling anywhere under any circumstances in his helpless, dependent state without having her to attend on him, she dismissed at once as too preposterous for consideration. The second objection of subjecting the child to the chances and fatigues of a long journey she met by proposing that they should travel to Exeter at their own time and in their own convenience, and that they should afterward ensure plenty of comfort and plenty of room by taking a carriage to themselves when they reached the railroad at Exeter. After thus smoothing away the difficulties which seemed to set themselves in opposition to the journey, she again reverted to the absolute necessity of undertaking it. She reminded Leonard of the serious interest they both had in immediately obtaining Mrs. Joseph's testimony to the genuineness of the letter which had been found in the Myrtle Room, as well as in ascertaining all the details of the extraordinary fraud which had been practised by Mrs. Traverton on her husband. She pleaded also her own natural anxiety to make all the atonement in her power for the pain she must have unconsciously inflicted in the bedroom at West Winston on the person of, who, of all others whose failings and sorrows she was most bound to respect, and having thus stated the motives which urged her husband and herself to lose no time in communicating personally with Mrs. Joseph, she again drew the inevitable conclusion that there was no alternative in the position in which they were now placed but to start forthwith on the journey to London. A little further consideration satisfied Leonard that the emergency was of such a nature as to render all attempts to meet it by half-measures impossible. He felt that his own convictions agreed with his wife's, and he resolved accordingly to act at once, without further indecision or further delay. Before the evening was over, the servants at Porthgenna were amazed by receiving directions to pack the trunks for travelling and to order horses at the post town for an early hour the next morning. On the first day of the journey, the travellers started as soon as the carriage was ready, rested on the road toward noon and remained for the night at Liskid. On the second day, they arrived at Exeter and slept there. On the third day, they reached London by the railway between six and seven o'clock in the evening. When they were comfortably settled for the night at their hotel, and when an hour's rest and quiet had enabled them to recover a little after the fatigues of the journey, Rosamond wrote two notes under her husband's direction. The first was addressed to Mr. Buskman. It simply informed them of their arrival and of their earnest desire to see him at the hotel as early as possible the next morning, and it concluded by cautioning him to wait until he had seen them before he announced their presence in London to his niece. The second note was addressed to the family solicitor, Mr Nixon, the same gentleman who more than a year since had written, at Mrs Franklin's request, the letter which informed Andrew Traverton of his brother's decease and of the circumstances under which the captain had died. All that Rosamond now wrote in her husband's name and her own to ask of Mr Nixon was that he would endeavour to call at their hotel on his way to business the next morning, 
to give his opinion on a private matter of great importance, which had obliged them to undertake the journey from Porthgenna to London. This note, and the note to Uncle Joseph, were sent to their respective addresses by a messenger on the evening when they were written. The first visitor who arrived the next morning was the solicitor, a clear-headed, fluent, polite old gentleman who had known Captain Traverton and his father before him. He came to the hotel fully expecting to be consulted on some difficulties connected with the Porthgenna estate, which the local agent was perhaps unable to settle, and which might be of too confused and intricate a nature to be easily expressed in writing. When he heard what the emergency really was, and when the letter that had been found in the Myrtle Room was placed in his hands, it is not too much to say that, for the first time in the course of a long life and a varied practice among all sorts and conditions of clients, sheer astonishment utterly paralysed Mr Nixon's faculties and bereft him for some moments of the power of uttering a single word. When, however, Mr Frankland proceeded from making the disclosure to announcing his resolution to give up the purchase money of Porthgenna Tower, if the genuineness of the letter could be proved to his own satisfaction, the old lawyer recovered the use of his tongue immediately and protested against his client's intention with the sincere warmth of a man who thoroughly understood the advantage of being rich and who knew what it was to gain and to lose a fortune of £40,000. Leonard listened with patient attention while Mr Nixon argued from his professional point of view against regarding the letter taken by itself as a genuine document and against accepting Mrs Joseph's evidence taken with it as decisive on the subject of Mrs Franklin's real parentage. He expatiated on the improbability of Mrs Traverton's alleged fraud upon her husband having been committed without other persons besides her maid and herself being in the secret. He declared it to be in accordance with all received experience of human nature that one or more of those persons must have spoken of the secret, either from malice or from want of caution, <clears throat> and that the consequent exposure of the truth must, in the course of so long a period as 22 years, have come to the knowledge of some among the many people in the west of England, as well as in London, who knew the Traversin family personally or by reputation. From this objection, he passed to another, which admitted the possible genuineness of the letter as a written document, but which pleaded the probability of its having been produced under the influence of some mental delusion on Mrs Traverton's part, which the maid may have had an interest in humouring at the time, though she might have hesitated after her mistress's death at risking the possible consequences of attempting to profit from the imposture. Having stated this theory as one which not only explained the writing of the letter, but the hiding of it also, Mr Nixon further observed, in reference to Mrs Jazeph, that any evidence she might give was of little or no value in a legal point of view from the difficulty, or, he might say, the impossibility of satisfactorily identifying the infant mentioned in the letter which the lady, whom he had now the honour of addressing as Mrs Franklin, and whom none, no unsubstantiated document in existence should induce him to believe to be any other than the daughter of his old friend and client, Captain Traverton. Having heard the lawyer's objections to the end, Leonard admitted their ingenuity, but acknowledged at the same time that they had produced no alteration in his impression on the subject of the letter, 
or in his convictions as to the course of duty which he felt bound to follow. He would wait, he said, for Mrs. Joseph's testimony before he acted decisively, but if that testimony were of such a nature and were given in such a manner as to satisfy him that his wife had no moral right to the fortune that she possessed, he would restore it at once to the person who had, Mr. Andrew Traverton. Finding no fresh arguments or suggestions could shake Mr. Franklin's resolution and that no separate appeal to Rosamond had the slightest effect in stimulating her influence to induce her husband to alter his determination. I'm pausing to have a drink. Mr. Nixon at last consented, under protest, to give his client what help he needed in case it became necessary to hold communication with Andrew Traverton. He listened with polite resignation to Leonard's brief statement of the questions that he intended to put to Mrs. Joseph, and said with the slightest possible dash of sarcasm when it came to his turn to speak that they were excellent questions in a moral point of view and would doubtless produce answers which would be full of interest of the most romantic kind. But, he added, as you have one child already, Mr. Franklin, and as you may perhaps, if I may venture on suggesting such a thing, have more in the course of years, and as those children, when they grow up, may hear of the loss of their mother's fortune, and may wish to know why it was sacrificed, I should recommend resting the matter on family grounds alone, and not going further to make a legal point of it. Also, that you procure for Mrs. Joseph, besides the viva voce, evidence you propose to extract, against the admissibility of which, in this case, I again protest, a written declaration which you may leave behind you at your death, and which may you justify you in the eyes of your children in case the necessity for such justification should arise at some future period. This advice was too plainly valuable to be neglected. At Leonard's request, Mr. Nixon drew out at once a form of declaration <clears throat> affirming the genuineness of the letter addressed by the late Mrs. Traverton on her deathbed to her husband, since also deceased, and bearing witness to the truth of the statements therein contained, both as regarded the fraud practised on Captain Traverton and the asserted parentage of the child, telling Mr. Franklin that he would do well to have Mrs. Joseph's signature to this document attested by the names of two competent witnesses, Mr. Nixon handed the declaration to Rosamond to read aloud to her husband, and finding that no objection was made to any part of it, and that he could be of no further use in the present early stage of the proceedings, rose to take his leave. At the expiration of that time, the welcome sound of footsteps was heard approaching the door, and Uncle Joseph entered the room. Rosamond's observation, stimulated by anxiety, detected a change in his look <clears throat> and manner the moment he appeared. His face was harassed and fatigued, and his gait as he advanced into the room had lost the briskness and activity which so quaintly distinguished it when she saw him for the first time at Porthgenna Tower. He tried to add to his first words of greeting an apology for being late, but Mrs. Rosamond, but Rosamond interrupted him in her eagerness to ask the first important question. "'We know that you have discovered her address,' she said anxiously, "'but we know nothing more.' Is she as she, as she, uh, is she as you fear to find her? Is she ill? The old man shook his head sadly. 
When I showed you her letter, he said, what did I tell you? She is so ill, madame, that not even the message your kindness gave to me will do her any good. Those few simple words struck Rosamond's heart with a strange fear which silenced her against her own will when she tried to speak again. Uncle Joseph understood the anxious look she fixed on him, and the quick sign she made toward the chair standing nearest to the sofa on which she and her husband were sitting. There he took his place, and there he confided to them all he had to tell. He had followed, he said, the advice which Rosamond had given to him. <clears throat> the messenger, a maid-servant, had called to inquire as was anticipated, and had left the post-office with his letter in her hand. He had followed her to a lodging-house in a street near, had seen her let herself in at the door, and had then knocked and inquired for Mrs. Jazeph. The door was answered by an old woman who looked like the landlady, <clears throat> and the reply was that no one of that name lived there. He had then explained that he wished to see the person to whom the letters were sent to the neighbouring post office addressed to S.J. But the old woman had answered in the surliest way that they had nothing to do with anonymous people or their friends in that house and had closed the door in his face. Upon this, he had gone back to his friend, the German baker, to get advice and had been recommended to return, after allowing some little time to elapse, to ask if he could see the servant who waited on the lodgers to describe his niece's appearance and to put half a crown into the girl's hand to help her to understand what he wanted. <clears throat> he had followed these directions and had discovered that his niece was lying ill in the house under the assumed name of Mrs. James. A little persuasion, after the present of the half-crown, had induced the girl to go upstairs and announce his name. After that, there were no more obstacles to be overcome, and he was conducted immediately to the room occupied by his niece. He was inexpressibly shocked and startled when he saw her by the violent, nervous agitation which she manifested as he approached her bedside. But he did not lose heart and hope until he had communicated Mrs. Franklin's message and had found that it failed altogether in producing the reassuring effect on her spirits which he had trusted and believed that it would exercise. Instead of soothing, it seemed to excite and alarm her afresh. Among a host of minute inquiries about Mrs. Franklin's looks, about her manner toward him, about the exact words she had spoken, all of which he was able to answer more or less to her satisfaction, she had addressed two questions to him, to which he was utterly unable to reply. The first of the questions was whether Mrs. Franklin had said anything about the secret. The second was whether she had spoken any chance word to lead to the suspicion that she had found out the situation of the Myrtle Room. The doctor in attendance had come in, the old man added, while he was still sitting by his niece's bedside, and still trying ineffectually to induce her to accept the friendly and reassuring language of Mrs. Franklin's message. After making some inquiries and talking a little while on indifferent matters, the doctor had privately taken him aside, had informed him that the pain over the region of the heart and the difficulty in breathing, which were the symptoms of which his niece complained, were more serious in their nature than persons uninstructed in medical matters might be disposed to think, and had begged him to give her no more messages from anyone unless he felt perfectly sure beforehand that they would have the effect of clearing her mind at once and for ever from the secret anxieties that now harassed it. Anxieties which he might rest assured were aggravating her malady day by day and rendering all the medical help that could be given of little or no avail. Upon this, after sitting longer with his niece 
and after holding counsel with himself, he had resolved to write privately to Mrs. Franklin that evening, after getting back to her, his friend's house. The letter had taken him longer to compose than anyone accustomed to writing would believe. At last, after delays in making a fair copy for many rough drafts, and delays in leaving his task to attend to his niece, he had completed a letter narrating what had happened since his arriving in London, in language which he hoped might be understood. Judging by comparison of dates, this letter must have crossed Mr. and Mrs. Franklin on the road. It contained nothing more than he had just been relating with his own lips, except that it also communicated as a proof as a proof that distance had not diminished the fear which tormented his niece's mind, the explanation she had given to him of her concealment of her name and of her choice of an abode among strangers when she had friends in London to whom she might have gone. That explanation it was perhaps needless to have lengthened the letter by repeating, <clears throat> for it only involved his saying over again in substance what he had already said in speaking of the motive which had forced Sarah to put part from him at Truro. With the last words such as those, the sad and simple story of the old man came to an end. After waiting a little to recover her self-possession and to steady her voice, Rosamond touched her husband to draw his attention to herself and whispered to him. I may say all now that I wish to say it for Skinner. All, he answered. If you can trust yourself, Rosamond, it is fittest he should hear it from your lips. After the first natural burst of astonishment was over, the effect of the disclosure of the secret on Uncle Joseph exhibited the most striking contrast that can be imagined to the effect of it on Mr. Nixon. No shadow of doubt darkened the old man's face. Not a word of objection dropped from his lips. The one emotion excited in him was a simple, unreflecting, unalloyed delight. He sprang to his feet with all his natural activity. His eyes sparkled again with all their natural brightness. One moment he clapped his hands like a child. The next he caught up his hat and entreated Rosamond to let him lead her at once to his niece's bedside. If you will only tell Sarah what you have just told me, he cried, hurrying across the room to open the door, you will give her back her courage, you will raise her up from her bed, you will cure her before the day is out. A warning, warning word from Mr. Franklin stopped him on a sudden, and brought him back, silent and attentive, to the chair that he had left the moment before. Think a little of what the doctor told you, said Leonard. The sudden surprise, which has made you so happy, might do a fatal mischief to your niece. Before we take the responsibility of speaking to her on the subject, which is sure to agitate her violently, however careful we may be in introducing it, we ought first, I think, for safety's sake, to apply to the doctor for advice. Rosamond warmly seconded her husband's suggestion, and with her characteristic impatience of delay, proposed that they should find out the medical man immediately. Uncle Joseph announced, a little unwillingly as it seemed, in answer to her inquiries, that he knew the place of the doctor's residence, and that he was generally to be found at home before one o'clock in the afternoon. Rosamond was about to leave the room to put on her bonnet, after giving the necessary order for a cab, when the old man stopped her by asking, with some appearance of hesitation and confusion, if it was considered necessary that he should go to the doctor with Mr and Mrs Franklin, adding, before the question could be answered, that he would greatly prefer, if there was no objection to it on their parts, being left to wait at the hotel to receive any instructions that they might wish to give him on their return. Leonard immediately complied with his request, 
without inquiring into his reasons for making it. But Rosamond's curiosity was aroused, and she asked why he preferred to remain by himself at the hotel. I like him not, said the old man. When he speaks about Sarah, he looks and talks as if he thought she would never get up from her bed again. Answering those brief words, he walked away uneasily to the window, as if he desired to say no more. Oh, pausing. Oh, wow. There's a lot being jammed into here, and it's all quite very boring. Man, get to the point. The residence of the doctor was at some little distance, but Mr. and Mrs. Franklin arrived there before one o'clock and found him at home. He was a young man with a mild, grave face and a quiet, subdued manner. Daily contact with suffering and sorrow had perhaps prematurely steadied and saddened his character. Merely introducing her husband and herself to him as persons who were deeply interested in his patient, Rosamond left it to Lennon to ask the first questions relating to the condition of her mother's health. The doctor's answer was ominously prefaced by a few polite words which were evidently intended to prepare his hearers for a less hopeful report than they might have come there expecting to receive. Carefully divesting the subject of all professional technicalities, he told them his patient was undoubtedly affected with serious disease of the heart. The exact nature of this disease he candidly acknowledged to be a matter of doubt, which various medical men might decide in various ways. According to the opinion which he himself had formed from the symptoms, he believed the patient's malady was connected with the artery, which conveys blood directly from the heart through the system. Having found her singularly unwilling to answer questions relating to the nature of her past life, he could only guess that the disease was of long standing, that it was originally produced by some great mental shock, followed by long wearing anxiety, of which her face showed palpable traces, and that it had been seriously aggravated by the fatigue of a journey to London, which she acknowledged she had undertaken at a time when great nervous exhaustion rendered her totally unfit to travel. Speaking according to this view of the case, it was his painful duty to tell her friends that any violent emotion would unquestionably put her life in danger. At the same time, if the mental uneasiness from which he was now suffering could be removed, and if she could be placed in a quiet, comfortable country home, among people who would be unremittingly careful in keeping her composed and in suffering her to want for nothing, there was reason to hope that the progress of the disease might be arrested and that her life might be spared for some years to come. Rosamond's heart bounded at the picture of the future, which her fancy drew from the suggestions that lay hidden in the doctor's last words. She can command every advantage you have mentioned, and more, if more is required, she interposed eagerly before her husband could speak again. Oh, sir, if rest, is a, if rest among kind friends is all that her poor, weary heart wants, thank God we can give it. We can give it, said Leonard continuing the sentence for his wife. If the doctor will sanction our making a communication to his patient, which is of a nature to relieve her of all anxiety, but which it is necessary to add, she is at present quite unprepared to receive. May I ask, said the doctor, who is to be entrusted with the responsibility of making the communication you mention? There are two persons who could be entrusted with it, answered Leonard. One is the old man, whom you have seen by your patient's bedside. The other is my wife. In that case, rejoined the doctor, looking at Rosamond, there can be no doubt that this lady is the fittest person to undertake the duty. He paused and reflected for a moment, then added, 
May I inquire, however, before I venture on guiding your decision one way or the other, whether the lady as, is as familiarly known to my patient, and is on the same intimate terms with her as the old man? I am afraid I must answer no to both those questions, replied Leonard, and I ought perhaps to tell you at the same time that your patient believes my wife to be now in Cornwall. Her first appearance in the sick room would, I fear, cause great surprise to the sufferer, and possibly some little alarm as well. Under those circumstances, said the doctor, the risk of trusting the old man, simple as he is, seems to be infinitely the least risk of the two, for the plain reason that his presence can cause her no surprise. However unskillfully he may break the news, he will have the great advantage over this lady of not appearing unexpectedly at the bedside. If the hazardous experiment must be tried, and I assume it must from what you have said, you have no choice, I think, but to trust it, with proper cautions and instructions to the old man to carry out. After arriving at that conclusion, there was no more to be said on either side. The interview terminated, and Rosamond and her husband hastened back to give Uncle Joseph his instructions at the hotel. As they approached the door of their sitting room, they were surprised by hearing the sound of music inside. On entering, they found the old man crouched upon a stool listening to a shabby little musical box which was placed on the table close by him, and which was playing an air that Rosamond recognised immediately as the Batty Batty of Mozart. I hope you will pardon me for making music to keep myself company, said Uncle Joseph, starting up in some confusion and touching the stop of the box. This is, if you please, of all my friends and companions, the oldest that is left. The divine Mozart, the king of all the composers that has ever lived, gave it with his own hand, madam, to my brother, when Max was a boy in the music school at Vienna. Since my niece left me in Cornwall, I have not had the heart to make Mozart sing to me out of this little bit of box until today. Now that you have made me happy about Sarah again, my ears ache once more for the tiny ting-ting that has always been the same friendly sound to my heart. Travel where I may, but enough, said the old man, placing the box in the leather case by his side, which Rosamond had noticed there when she first saw him. I shall put back my singing bird into his cage, and shall ask, when that is done, if you will be pleased to tell me what it is the doctor has said. Rosamond answered his request by relating the substance of the conversation which had passed between her husband and the doctor. She then, with many preparatory cautions, proceeded to instruct the old man how to disclose the discovery of the secret to his niece. She told him that the circumstances in connection with it must be first stated, not as events that had really happened, but as events that might be supposed to have happened. She put the words that he would have to speak into his mouth choosing the fewest and the plainest that would answer the purpose. She showed him how he might glide almost imperceptibly from referring the discovery as a thing that might be supposed to referring to it as a thing that had really happened, and she impressed upon him, as most important of all, to keep perpetually before his niece's mind the fact that the discovery of the secret had not awakened one bitter feeling or one resentful thought towards her. In the minds of either of the persons, who had been so deeply interested in finding it out. Uncle Joseph listened with unwavering attention until Rosamond had done, then rose from his seat, fixed his eyes intently on her face and detected an expression of anxiety and doubt in it, which he rightly interpreted as referring to himself. May I make sure, make you sure before I go away that I forget nothing, he asked very earnestly. I have no head to invent, it is true, but I have something in me that can remember all the more especially when it's for Sarah's sake. If you please listen now and hear if I can say to you over again all you have said to me. 
Standing before Rosamond, with something in his look and manner strangely and touchingly suggestive of the long past days of his childhood, and of the time when he had said his earliest lessons at his mother's knee, he now repeated from first to last the instructions that had been given to him, with verbal exactness, with an easy readiness of memory, which in a man of his age was nothing less than astonishing. It was still necessary to detain him while Rosamond and her husband consulted together on the best and safest means of following up the avowal that the secret was discovered by the announcement of their own presence in London. Sorry, I'm pausing to flick ahead, being like, when will this chapter end? Okay. I I'm I need to stop reading this because I just I just can't take this anymore. So I'm gonna stop reading it. Um, but basically, they chat with Uncle Joseph some more, they tell him what to do, he leaves, and he goes off to tell Sarah what's happening. So, like, that's all that happens. I just, I, I can't read this anymore. <laughs> I need to go and, go and sleep. I need to sleep and hopefully not dream of this. So ch the next chapter, chapter three, is called The Story of the Past. So I will continue that tomorrow this is a slightly failure of this podcast that I just like I just can't bear to read this this chapter anymore I just I just can't do it like this whole recounting with those Uncle Joseph being told what to say and then him repeating it like I just can't it's too repetitive it's melting my brain I need to stop and I need to sleep I am sorry I'll endeavor to do better I'll endeavor to pick a better book one that doesn't make my soul cry I'm going to stop. I will continue tomorrow. I wish you all the best and have a good night.